0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 203. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we interview Paul Martin of Martin Archaeology Consulting about using dogs to find burials in archaeological contexts. Let's get to it. Paul is the principal of Martin Archaeology Consulting, a registered professional archaeologist, and has a master's in anthropology from the University of Mississippi, where his research focused on archaeological geophysics. He also holds a bachelor's in science in anthropology with a concentration in forensic anthropology from Western Carolina University. Coursework has been completed for his Ph.D. in earth sciences with a concentration in archaeological geophysics from the University of Memphis. Paul has worked with the nonprofit History Flight Incorporated, a private MIA research and recovery team in Belgium, France, Germany, and the Philippines. He is a voting member of the American Academy of Forensic Science Standards Board Consensus Body for Dogs and Sensors. Currently working with his sixth canine, a chocolate Labrador retriever named Abby. Yeah.
1: Okay. Welcome to the Architect Podcast, everyone. Paul, how's it going? It's going all right. Since I spoke to you last, I was off at the Icana conference in Copenhagen, and we had a uh, a full-day workshop on the uh, the work that we were all doing in Lagash. So I presented there, my colleagues presented there. We had comments and questions and such from uh, people sitting in the room. It was really interesting. I mean, the, the whole conference was uh, you know, it was a very good conference. I enjoyed it quite <laughs> a bit, but that day was kind of coming out party for, for our excavation. How are you doing, nice. Chris? Where are you now? Technically, well, technically, actually I'm in Ocean Isle Beach, North Carolina right
0: now. We're just kind of on a, a little somewhat vacation with my wife's family. They come out to the beach every year. They're from Charlotte. So we we mm-hmm. flew out and, and decided to come out here with them for the week. So it's been a nice, despite the fact that half the time out here it's been cloudy and raining (laughs) but aside from that there's a swimming pool here a heated pool behind the house so when we couldn't go hang out at the ocean which is just across the street we just went and hung out at the pool so it's been it's
1: been good either way sounds rough
0: Yeah, I know. I know. So speaking of rough, our guest today had a long travel day yesterday because he's doing some fun things up in Alaska, but we may get to that near the end of the show. But we're going to talk first to Paul Martin of Martin Archaeology Consulting, and we're going to talk to him about what he's doing with dogs and and other things. So, Paul, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what just what Martin Archaeology Consulting is?
2: Martin Archaeology Consulting, we're a small consulting firm that works with other firms, other agencies, and so forth to provide archaeological human remains detection dogs and geophysical surveys. Sometimes we do archaeological excavations and and that type work. But primarily, we focus on surveys and the use of dogs to help locate unmarked burials of historic and pre-contact context.
0: Nice. And that's actually how we got to get in contact with you, because episode 189 of this podcast, which is linked in the show notes, called Utilizing Specialized Dogs to Find Historic Burials had nothing to do with Paul. Well, you weren't on the show. It had everything to do with you, but it was <laughs> we interviewed somebody else <laughs> and it was a project down in Louisiana where you were called in to help find some historic burials. And that was pretty cool. So we wanted to get you on to, to kind of talk about, you know, the actual technical, I guess, details of that. Yeah. I'm just wondering how you got into, I mean, we read your bio and you've got a master's in anthropology and a concentration in uh, forensic anthropology and, you know, interest in geophysics. How'd you get into using dogs for archaeology?
2: Actually, it it was the dogs that introduced me to the world of anthropology (laughs) and archaeology. I fell into this world through a cold case uh, with the sheriff's department There in Mississippi, where an investigation took us out to a Indian mound, where we had an informant saying that a missing person had been buried out there two or three years prior. Mm -hmm. And we did a search, didn't see any disturbance or anything of that nature that would indicate a, a burial of that age but did get some behavior change and and it got me questioning the the capabilities of the dogs. And I'd also heard about a couple of other handlers beginning to do this work in California, because this is Mm -hmm. in in 2002 when this search came about for the sheriff's department. Uh, And so this was 20 years ago. And with that, I went to local archeological park. We, we had just north of my hometown, started talking to archeologists, got permission, come out, work, the dogs had trained final responses from my dog, indicating the potential uh, of human decomposition odor being present. Mm -hmm. And from there. Asked if I could bring in other handlers, other dogs, make sure I wasn't doing anything to influence my dog to give those responses, Mm -hmm. uh, additional responses from these other dogs. And took all this information to the archaeologist over the park. And he looked at me and it's like, wow, how's this even possible? It's like, (laughs) I don't know. I'm a dumb dog handler. (laughs) I I had no clue. And so we started looking at the archaeological record, and that took us back to Dr. Jeffrey Brain's dissertation where he'd excavated the site. And it took us from there to some of the excavations that Clarence Bloomfield Moore had, had done the early uh, 20th century indicating that he'd found burials along with what Dr. Jeffrey Brain had found and these are correlating back to where the dogs are giving responses and again the archaeologist at the parks like how is this even possible because mm-hmm. once all the soft tissue is gone bone is bone mm-hmm. okay? and that that's you know this can't be possible. So I started digging around and and trying to get a better understanding of what was going on. And from there uh, I ran across the work that was being done at the university of Tennessee at their decomposition facility and started reaching out to a couple of researchers working on human decomposition odor Mm -hmm. and in the middle of the night, I railed off, sent off an email, and one of those researchers actually replied back to me. He's like, yeah, it's quite possible for the dogs to indicate on these remains that are not only hundreds of years old, but could be, you know, 500, 600, 1,000 years old. Wow. Um, And with that, then we started questioning, is it a, you know, is it the environment? Is it about the quality of training? You know, how does all of this begin to work? And Mm so with that, the archeologist, John Sullivan, I was working with from the park, the two of us began questioning more and more and, they took me to other sites with my dog, and then from there, we started hosting a, an invitational and brought in dogs from across the country, and over a five-year period of time, we brought in about 40 handlers and 40 wow. different dogs from across the country and worked multiple sites and kind of got a better understanding about when was best time of day to work the dogs. Mm-hmm. And we found that those early morning hours, you know, early evening mm-hmm. hours tend to be the best time out of the heat of the day. From there, we started noticing that if... We took the opportunity to work the dog on older or and draw human bone and known graves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was as much about instilling confidence in the handler about their dog's ability as it was about reinforcing that. The dog itself.
0: Yeah. Mm.
2: And then from there, we were able to begin tracking these metrics. So from there, we found that it's not advisable to work immediately after a rainstorm. Okay. We needed to work like the next day. Sometimes mm. depending on how much rain it might be two days later, so that as the ground begins to dry out, what's actually happening? evaporation is beginning to occur again, and as that evaporation oh. is occurring, we've got odor being able mm-hmm. to come back up into the air column
1: well wow. i'm actually I'm fascinated the the approach to it metrics, you know and and the comparison to geophysical tools, you know to GPR, magnetometry, whatever, using dogs as, as this kind of wetware sensor is <laughs> really interesting because you're approaching it from a scientific point of view. and I know people have done things like dowsing uh, that some archaeologists have have really you know claimed as is incredibly valid and a lot of other people have (laughs) shown is probably less so, but that you set up initially to test your own relationship with your dog versus other people's relationships with their dogs and then built it out kind of in in a scientific methodology to try to, uh, to find out well, you said metrics, yeah. So it's to try to find out what works, what doesn't work, you know, how much influence does the handler have, and so on. And I, and, and this is, to me, a, a really fascinating approach that you're you're coming at it from an inherently scientific methodological way with this thing that, you know, has its own brain and has its own learning, and has its own affections and interaction with you. Um, so it's a, which, mm-hmm. you know, the Perfect. GPR sled doesn't.
2: Right. Well, <laughs> And, and, and that, that's one of the, I, I think, one of the, the the critical things and one of the things that Zach Overfield that uh, I worked with there in Louisiana on that project, he found fascinating was that because I, I'm able to approach this with one foot firmly in that canine handler and, and canine. Mm-hmm world and then the Mm -hmm. other foot firmly in the geophys and and the (laughs) anthropology archaeology world is a little bit different approach than has been taken a lot of times Mm -hmm. that's because i had five years experience behind me as a a handler before i was Mm -hmm. ever introduced to any of this and then from there once I, I started down this pathway, John Sullivan had been exposing me more and more to the world of archaeology through readings, taking me to different sites. I began volunteering. I got exposure to different field schools, to the University of Mississippi's field schools with Dr. J. Johnson. I was Introduced to the world of geophysics through Brian Haley and seeing how those components could really begin working together. And from there, it was just a matter of time that in 2010, 2009, 2010, when the opportunity presented for me to be able to go back to school. I returned to school and completed my undergrad in anthropology Mm. there at western carolina and and there i was able to focus strictly in on the forensic anthropology bow art aspect and really hone in on the decomposition and what's kind of going on there And so forth, and began working also with a, a forensic anthropologist, Dr. Cheryl Johnston, who gave me a lot of leeway because I was an older student. I, I did have a lot of experience in life. Well, Paul,
0: that sounds like a good opportunity to take a break here because. Uh, This being the Archaeotech podcast, the other Paul and I have a lot of technical questions related to using canines for archaeological purposes. So let's take a break and continue this discussion on the other side back in a minute. Hey, Archaeology podcast fans, anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARKPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes.
1: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 203. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, All <laughs> <No>, right, <laughs> talking with Paul Martin about using dogs for forensic archaeology. We were talking a lot about the dogs. You know, I was saying it's kind of analogous to the GPR sled that you're using. I, I have a um, a Dachshund, you know, and they are they're hounds. They've got a Great big nose, and so a few years ago, I was out on the the, the lake behind our house. We, it was frozen. It was the middle of winter, and a uh, coyote or fox had gone across some days prior. You know, I could tell by the by how melted the the tracks were in the ice, and. The dog just picked up the scent of that and and followed it on, you know, across the the entire lake and into the woods. And I was really impressed that you know, after a couple of days, you know, this dog <laughs> had found this track, the scent of this animal that had walked past there. But you were talking before about finding pre-contact burials, which is really <laughs> much longer than two days ago. So I, I was wondering, do you have a, a general sense of like what kind of dog breeds are best for this work. And I guess that would probably be a combination of, you know, their ability to smell, but also their ability to do the work with you.
2: So the breed that I personally work with Mm -hmm. is a lab. Uh, I personally like working with Labrador Retrievers. Nice size dog. They can cover the area, but uh, they travel well. They train easy. The maintenance training is very easy. In general, mm-hmm. what we're looking for for this type work is a, a medium to large-sized dog. When I say mm-hmm. medium, that could be a dog 25, 30 pounds all the way up to a dog 75, 80 pounds. We want a dog that is able to really cover the terrain that you're asked to, to work in. And at the same point in time, not so large or so gregarious that if the environmental conditions are such, or if it's extremely hot or, you know, mm. we've got to be cautious mm. of that anyway, but yeah. you don't want the dog to be overly large that you're having to worry. It's, Excessively about, are we trying to cover too much area? <laughs> in general, we're trying to cover between a half acre to an acre in an hour, uh, depending yeah. on mm-hmm. the, the amount of vegetation. Mm-hmm. And also depending on, are are we searching for historic burials or are we doing work for pre-contact stuff?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm just wondering, so you, you prefer labs and, but if you get a dog that's within that, you know, within that weight range, so they have the stamina, but they're not too big. And just side note, I mentioned i out here in North Carolina with my wife's family. There are three great Danes in this family. Three of her siblings have great Danes and they are gigantic. <laughs> I'm a big guy <laughs> and these great Danes could easily like push me over. At least one of them could anyway. So if you have a dog that fits within that range, and, you know, maybe as a short hair, it's not going to overheat in the, you know, in the, in the hotter temperatures. Can it really be any dog that can be trained to do this or are some just way better at it?
2: I think some are, are better at it. You've got to look at what was the, the dog originally bred for, you know, obviously mm-hmm. your, your greyhounds, are not going to be <laughs> suitable <laughs> for this because they're they're a sight hound.
1: Wait, right? They won't do it faster than any other dog.
2: <laughs> they might do it faster than any other dog, but the nose is not as well defined True. as some of the other breeds. I personally uh, try to work my dog, and I, I like that that medium range. You know, 65, 70 pounds, mm-hmm. okay, 75 mm-hmm. the, the largest, because I also have traveled internationally with my dogs. Mm-hmm. And they don't fly in cargo. They actually fly in cabin with me yeah. because I've done work searching for MIAs. And so doing that work through history flight, I want a dog that is, you know, going fit under an airplane seat.
0: Sure. Yeah. (laughs) It fits in an overhead bin. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And I take the approach of searching the area as a traditional transect type grid. Grid Mm -hmm. pattern versus just, I might start off with a loose, undirected search see if the dog picks up anything Mm -hmm. directly on their own Mm -hmm. and if not i then go into you know a more prescribed transect pattern and i'm tracking that with a gps collar Mm -hmm. so that i can then look at okay what kind of coverage pattern do I have? One of the things that I have issues with right now is the available accuracy for the canine GPS receivers. But we're working on some things to enhance the accuracy of the the receivers that we put on the canines.
1: Uh, I'm going to back this up just a little bit here because we're talking a lot about dogs <laughs> obviously you know i i've my dog who i mentioned has fear of all big dogs because he's tiny except for one dog they grew up with who lives down the street from us here and he's a lab a great big golden lab that was originally trained we've got a, a scene guide dog training facility a couple of miles from where we live and he was originally there but he failed out of school. <laughs> and so he became a pet. And he's humongous. He's he's like a hundred pounds. He's a great big, very, you know, gentle giant. But you know, that that's a particular kind of dog. And he failed out of school. And and I'm wondering, how do the dogs that you use for archaeological perspective for you know, lack of a better term for your forensic work. How are they different than your typical pet like mine or another working dog you know or a, a dog that's you know tied to a specific person like these seeing-eye dogs like Atticus down the street. How are they different?
2: <laughs> Typically these dogs ha- have been socialized to Are they specifically trained to be forensic dogs? What we're trying to do is move away from dogs that have been traditionally used to work for law enforcement mm-hmm. and work on criminal case work. And now are moving towards working with dogs and dog handler teams that are specifically being trained to work for own archaeological investigations. Wow. and and with that the dogs uh, and the handlers are being trained in a way that one they need to understand how to operate out on an archaeological site Mm -hmm. they will have the socialization skills to be around multiple people and, and so forth and for the most part ignore those people while they are working from there They will be used to other things going on or around them if need be. Because sometimes even one of the smaller dogs that I've seen do this work is a little Jack Russell. It's a (laughs) larger Jack outside of the Cincinnati area. And with it, that archaeological site sits in the middle of a construction project. So even though they've got excavations and things like that going on with them, they've also got heavy equipment being operated around them. The project that we were working on there in Louisiana, we had a train, you know, trestle right there with a train that went by. We had... Dump trucks running up and down. And the dogs just ignored all of that. Dogs are, are trained to ignore the other dogs. Hmm. In the airports, our dogs are trained to completely ignore another dog. That, that's one of the big differences between these dogs is they understand when they're in a work environment versus, okay, now you're out in the wild to go play Hmm. and and you can go run with with your your friend and go swim in the lake or go play in the the stream
0: Uh, i don't i don't know people that can do that you know usually they're just messing around at work too so you know that's impressive (laughs)
2: the the dogs are much better workers than than some of the the people (laughs)
0: Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, we've got some follow ups for this. I've got a specific one. Let's take a last break and uh, we'll wrap this up on segment three. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our
0: classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 203. And we are wrapping up this discussion with Paul Martin on his use of dogs in basically forensic archaeology. Paul, some of the things you said on the last segment got me thinking about you know, when you said running the dogs on a transect and how they're they're trained not to be distracted by other dogs, you know, when a person is on a transect, on like, say, a, a wider transect, like a 30-meter transect or something, you know you're not looking f- 15 meters either side of you. You're looking only a couple meters either side of you at best, maybe one to two, and then that's your sample size, right? With a dog, do they weave around a transect do you keep them within a certain parameter like a person generally walks roughly in a straight line well they try to anyway Uh, but does a dog like weave on a transect (laughs) yeah (laughs) and uh you know how how wide is their field of scent and then how do you keep them basically on that transect if they catch a scent that's maybe maybe off of it
2: yes we we try to let them weave that that transect Mm -hmm. and then and weaving that transect There's a a variance of two to three meters each side from that center, because there's a lot about canine olfaction that we don't have fully narrowed down. Sure Uh, Hmm. Same thing with human decomposition and human decomposition odor, Uh, Hmm. especially this older odor. And with that, I try to provide a variance uh, of two to possibly four meters for the canine to be able to uh, possibly pick up the, that odor. Mm-hmm. But we do have, you know, sometimes where if we're, we're downhill, we've got runoff Dogs can possibly pick up odor from that runoff and then work mm. it uphill okay. and, and pull up to it. We do see that. We see it in forensic cases. We see it in, I've seen it in archaeological projects and, and so forth. So we do know that is occurring. So we don't have exact hard and fast parameters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there is the variations that occur sure. with the temperature during the yeah. day, the humidity mm-hmm. during the day, even the barometric pressure that var- okay. mm-hmm. varies throughout the day. We try to keep those variables to see if there's something that that's going on there. The other things, sometimes, we, depending on what the project is – We might take the approach that we will run this area with one dog under at this time because we know we'll have one set of conditions where we'll run it that same area 24 hours or 40, not 24, but 36 hours later. -hmm. Because we know we'll have a completely different set of environmental conditions. Yeah. And see if it's presenting differently to the uh, adult. That's
1: interesting to me because one of the things I just presented at that iconic conference was about drone overflights that I do and the changing environmental conditions, because we, we, I have some pre-programmed flights so I can see subsurface architecture that I just, you know, I, if I have a little bit of time, I'll, you know, send the drone up and do its 20 minute flight over an area. And what I'm starting to see are patterns of, you know, The amount of moisture, did it rain the day before, two days before, is the sun directly overhead or is it glancing, you know, whatnot, to try to get a sense of when we're going to see these things. So it's, it's interesting to me in a very kind of like, amorphous sort of sense that that you're mm. doing the same thing with the dogs you know to, is it better shortly after a rainfall or a couple of days after a rainfall uh, you know dates of high pressure or low pressure sun up sun down whatever and again that goes back to, to this funny notion that i hadn't thought of before as the dogs as being these uh these data collection vehicles i mean it's not digital data which is what we primarily talk about chris and i on this on this yeah. channel but <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very similar, even though it's all again wetware. You know, it's all the dogs and you have to filter it through what the dogs do. So the dogs do what dogs do, and one of the things the dogs do is they dig. <laughs> you know, I've I've had enough hounds. I've I've seen them, you know, catch a scent and decide to make a mess out of the yard. It, is that a thing that you have to train out of your work dogs, or do they somehow know not to dig?
2: Yeah, that that's correct. We're we're training the dogs to offer a, a passive response, such as a sit or a down, or a uh, sometimes a hold and stare, and, and sometimes you have a, a dog that might offer just a a low investigatory swipe. That's completely different than a dog that's in the backyard digging to China. Now, we don't want that type of response from the dog because, again, we don't want to create this type of disturbance.
0: Okay speaking of that you know when you see people out there like metal detecting and stuff right they, they'll put pin flags around and then they'll go check what they've uh, what they've flagged and see what's there I imagine you guys do a similar thing with the dogs you know you mark where they're where they've alerted on and, and then you come back and take a look at it what percentage of those would you say on the average is an actual thing like the hit rate what you know how good are they doing basically
2: so one of the things that I try to do with every response we are marking those responses with submeter GPS mm-hmm. or RTK GPS. Mm-hmm. And then coming back in and if possible, depending on the terrain, try to go in and collect GPR over an area. That could be a uh, five meter square, could be uh, even a ten meter square over that area to give us an understanding of what's going on in there. We can mm-hmm. have multiple responses in the same area. If we have that, usually we've got multiple grades that will show up in there. Our our success in, in partnering that together has shown that we've got uh, a response or a success rate of – between 75 and 85 percent wow something actually being there that in the data uh, at least appears to be a grave and Hmm. and then from there and ground truthing that's up to each agency or and sometimes we have responses that come back that we do want a ground truth like i've got a project in nashville right now It's has gone on for a year and a half we've got a row of burials that the dog initially identified here are your graves it shows up in the the gpr once we stripped off the surface it, it literally shows up bam 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 uh, you can see the outline of the, the grave shafts, and it's an enslaved cemetery right there. Wow.
1: So. Wow. That's dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that really
0: is. You know, we're running out of time here on this podcast. We could probably go on about this. Like we mentioned, I think I can't remember if we did it on the recording or not, but we definitely need a forensic Archaeology or Anthropology podcast on the APN. So if anybody listening to this, you included, Paul, is interested, <laughs> just get in <laughs> touch with me and we can talk about it. Let's actually shift gears just a little bit because I want to bring this up because it's a tie-in to episode 189. And again, that link is in the show notes if you guys haven't heard it from the Archaeotech podcast. And we had the lead archaeologist on for this project, and it was for a spillway, a bridge a railroad bridge over a spillway near Noker Louisiana that needed to be replaced. And there was an oral history, somewhat of a tenuous oral history of a civil war era cemetery in the project area. So of course they wanted to make sure that wasn't actually there or if it was there, find it. So can you give us just a little, you know, brief synopsis over, you know, how you prepared for that project and what you guys ended up finding?
2: Yeah. With that project in there, background research, they they found there was a potential Civil War colored troop mm. cemetery there. Okay. In that area. And with that we brought in four different teen teams and then they'd already identified three of the teens and then they brought me in to bring my dog along with the Geophys package, Hmm. which was ground penetrating radar and gradiometry. So uh, with it, we took the project area and set it up just uh, as a, a traditional grid and then worked the dogs individually through that grid area, mapping in any of the if we got any type of re- response from the dogs, mm-hmm. from there, yeah. collected radiometry out away from the trestle, and then ground penetrating radar directly under the trestle. Okay. And with that, we had standing water, and, and oh. most oh. Of, uh, under the trestle, and, and most of the standing water. I did notice that the couple of responses we had from the dogs were associated in the boundary of the, the standing water. Mm-hmm. As we drained that standing water so I could do the ground mm-hmm. penetrating radar survey underneath those trestles, mm-hmm. it was filling up as fast as Jeez. we were doing it. Wow. Yeah. And, and they were, were literally having to redrain some of the space units for me as I was doing it. And so, what that highlighted to me was that the odor that the dogs were responding to, wasn't directly there, but was coming mm. in from outside the area. Also, when mm. I looked at all of the geophys that I collected in the area, there was nothing that stood out that appeared to be a grave feature. Okay. The dogs, or at least, I, I, I can't speak to the training of the other dogs, but mm-hmm. like for for my dog, she is specifically trained to work on nothing but 75 years and older. Oh, okay.
1: Oh my goodness. Uh, you all, can train them that specifically, huh?
2: Uh, all <laughs> she works is old dry bone and great hmm. historic and pre-contact. Yeah. Wow. So, So she never works any type of active decomposition, okay, or or soft tissue decomposition. Mm -hmm. Mm. With that, she's very specific to searching out those older remains uh, and older graves. Yeah, those in the industry of this this fledgling little industry niche that we're carving out for archaeological human remains detection dogs are are focusing on is that the dogs need to be specifically trained to work just that. Yeah. The handlers need to be used to working in those type of environments. Hmm. This year at the SAA meeting, we actually were able to have a symposium with seven, eight different papers. Nice from across the country, focused on the adults and, and projects that they've worked in. And it's not all my work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the researchers, one of the soil scientists that's also a handler that's approaching the question of how's all this possible is thinking part of this might be related to recalcitrant fats. That are still holding Mm -hmm. on into the soils Mm. you know years Mm. later so yeah Yeah. Yeah.
1: which makes sense
2: yeah yeah so paul um, (laughs)
1: i think that we could probably talk about this for hours and hours at this point but uh we're going to wrap it up now and i just wanted to thank you for really opening my eyes because for me The the notion of using dogs makes sense on some place, you know, as as a dog lover and somebody who knows that dogs have this incredible nose and this incredible ability to be trained and this incredible ability to have bonds with their with their handlers, Uh, and and you've demonstrated for us, I think, and certainly for me, how this can actually work in archaeology in ways I wouldn't expect, but also in ways that are really familiar to me because you're using them like you use geophys uh, so mm-hmm. so so thanks for for you know exposing me to something brand new and also uh, i understand your your latest what coworker is a, a chocolate lab named abby so if it's appropriate give her some extra scritchies for us and tell her she's a good girl because i'm sure she is and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast tonight
2: Thank y'all for having me, and I certainly will. All right. Well,
1: yes. Thank you. And
0: uh, I I literally, I just, I know we're over time, but I got one more thing to ask you, Paul. A lot of people take like a like an air tag or a tile and put that on their keys if they lose them. Do you just put like a like a really old chicken bone or something on your keys and have your dog find them for you when you lose them? Because that would be genius.
2: No.
1: (laughs) No.
0: You got to separate work and play. All right. Well, again. Thanks a lot. And this has been great. And I'd love to have you back on to talk about some of the interesting stuff you're working on. So thanks again, Paul.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Architect podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Contact us at chris at Archaeology Podcast Network.com and paul at lugal.com Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV
0: traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland,